morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. That music means it's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly ascent into the realm of ideas. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And all things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu, including all of these conversations dating back years. And by Dr. Thomas G. Weft, who holds the Paul Ermine Potter and Don Tibbetts Potter Endowed Professorship in Politics. He's been teaching politics at Hillsdale for a while. He got his undergraduate at Cornell, his master's in government at the Claremont Graduate University. That's where he got his Ph.D. as well. He's the author, among other things, of the, um, the four dialogues on Plato, which we talked about and we'll talk about again, four texts on Socrates, actually. And I want to go there, but first, Dr. Ron, you and I received an email this week, which is a little bit staggering, from a Mr. Brooks who said he had listened to all 600 hours of the Hillsdale Dialogues that you and I have done. Now, a radio week is 15 hours, so 600 hours is 10 months of radio. I've been doing this for 30 years. I had not realized I'd done 10 months of my 30 years of broadcasting with you or your colleagues. How come I'm not smarter? (laughs) Yes, the same question. Uh, There's a... Uh, for the, it's a lovely email. I've, I, I think I know who that man is. I think he's on the Imprimus list, which we never give out to anybody else, but we can use it. And I've written him a letter to tell him how great. Uh, also, I wonder if he overestimates, because I think it's been going for eight years, and it's probably been doing 40 weeks a year, and that would be 320 hours. And then there's all that crazy stuff you make me do, like Independence Day and Christmas and New Year's Eve and all that stuff. So... I don't know. It might be 400 hours. and uh, I've never added it up. It's a lot. But the, the man has gotten through sequestration by listening to you, me, and your colleagues like Dr. West. But I, when I looked at that total number, I gasped. And I said, oh, my goodness, I should know more. And I uh, specifically, Dr. West, it is by happenstance and happy coincidence you are here. Because yesterday I spent an hour talking with Probably the greatest living Protestant theologian, uh, formerly bishop, now Professor N.T. Wright, from his study in Oxford. He's now has an endowed chair at St. Andrews about what is his life's work. It's called History and Eschatology. It's the Gifford Lectures from from 2018. And in it, he divides the world of ideas into four realms. That of the Epicureans, that of the Platonists, that of the Aristotelians, and those of the Second Temple Jews. And he says the Platonists are not our friends. Mostly he argues with the Epicureans from the standpoint of a Christian who believes in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, from the standpoint of the Second Temple Jews. But he says the Platonists are not our friends. Are you surprised by that? Well, the thing about Plato is... uh he can mean just about anything you want to anybody who you like. So I, I don't, I mean, Plato's been treated often as the true precursor of Christianity. And here you have an example of it's the enemy of Christianity. You know, I, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe either one's true. I think Plato was a thinker and tried to do what he could, did very well because became world famous, of course, uh, later. And uh, everyone goes back to Plato. It's even there, even people who are critics have to go back there. They realize this is important. We got to know this. That's that's you said. That's one of his four uh, places period before orientations. It's remarkable to me. Actually, here we are 
by happenstance, talking about Plato, at the same time that this seminal work of theology comes out. And Larry Arnold, are you surprised by his divisions and by the conflict that he identifies between Jerusalem and Athens? Uh, I am, and um, I think it may even undercut his, um, <laughs> his your claim that he's the greatest. Well, maybe he's the greatest of, the, of recent times, but, I mean, isn't the old teaching in the Christian world the one that's exemplified by Thomas Aquinas, and that is that uh, Christianity is a is a faith that is open to knowing, even requires it, and that the works of the classics are the first great and still the greatest uh, examples of knowing, and so we can study them and learn them, and that'll be, you know, to name another contemporary, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, writes that uh, many of the things that we know and understand about Jesus comes to us not because we are children of Abraham, but because we are children of Aristotle. And uh, that seems true to me. And also his division between the Platonists and the Aristotelians, I dispute. I wonder what Tom West thinks about that. Dr. West? Yeah, I think there's a a question. I mean, Plato wrote dialogues, and he's elusive. Uh, Aristotle wrote treatises, and he's seemingly easy to read and easy to access. But once you get into Aristotle, you realize these treatises are not as straightforward as they look. They carry a very rich dialogue within that has to be penetrated in order to get to the heart of it. And that really means, in a way, Aristotle and Plato are deeply similar. Furthermore, when you think about what they care about, what they stand for, both are about, both thinkers, when it comes to politics and morality, are defenders of that. They are defenders, they are the first defenders of, uh, of a serious moral orientation in the entire philosophic tradition that stems to us from the ancients, ancient Greece. And to what, whatever you can say about their differences, especially in regard to metaphysics and so on, that they're they're on they're at one when with respect to the importance and seriousness of political and moral life, and everything everything we've had since then is built on that when it comes to political thought, political philosophy. I don't want to speak for Professor Wright. I don't want to capture this hour with him, but his standing in in Christian circles is quite extraordinary. He is to the Protestants as Benedict is to the Catholics, and People refer to him with that kind of esteem. And his 80 books stand as its own corpus, but he does view the Platonists as having captured Christianity and given them a way out of the bodily resurrection of Christ and allowing them to not argue for it by arguing instead for the higher things that Plato describes. And that's why I want to go to Plato now with a little bit of biography, Dr. West. Would you set him up? Last week we talked about Socrates would you establish Plato as the historical figure that he is? Well, he, he was a student uh, of Socrates, uh, and, and of course, he, he's the one who made Socrates world famous uh, posthumously through his dialogues, uh, many of which feature Socrates as, as the hero. And, and there's no question that Plato's fundamental orientation is Socratic. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, there's something deeper than that, which we can get to later. But, but you ask about his life. There, there's the student of Socrates, period. Uh, and then, you know, as a grown-up, he becomes increasingly interested in political action, uh, reform, 
uh, he becomes disillusioned with the democracy uh, in Athens, the corrupt, uh, you know, the corrupt way of life that's uh, that's that's dominating and had led the Athenians into disaster, of course, during the war with Sparta, and uh, he eventually went off and became a uh, tried to help a a, a, a tyrant in 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 Sicily to create a, a truly good regime. And for his pains, Plato, long story, but Plato for his pains ended up getting sold into slavery <laughs> and eventually got out of it, of course, and then went on to be to write the, all these great books. Um, but one of the things he says, he learned, Plato says he learned was that, uh, you know, when you try to create a perfect aristocracy, it, it can it actually may end up being worse than democracy. And it might make democracy, as he said in one of his letters, look like the golden age. Has anyone written a great biography of Plato? That's probably true. I don't know. That's probably that's that's something I w- I wouldn't. I don't know. I, I know the I know a few of the basic space. I'm much more interested in his ideas. That's what makes him important historically. But I, I bet I'm sure. I don't know. That's what I wanted. You just made my point. He is not known for what he did. He is known for what he wrote, and that's not really generally true of most people of the ancient world, is it, Doctor Arn? Uh, well, you know, so of course it's the opposite of Socrates, who it didn't write anything except Plato and Xenophon, especially, wrote up stories about him, recounted his conversations, because he philosophized through conversation. And, and, uh, and then Plato, you know, he, he doesn't appear in any of his writings unless you take the letters seriously. I don't know whether Tom does or not. Uh, I do. I, I've lately been reading the seventh letter, which Tom might have been alluding to just a minute ago. And in that letter, he describes why the Hillsdale Dialogues work. And I'll make that after the break. We will do that after the break. Don't go anywhere, America. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale, including their remarkable online courses at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with the professor uh, who teaches political theory so well at Hillsdale, Dr. Thomas West, and the president of the college who also teaches political theory there, Dr. Larry Arne. They are back to talk about Plato this week. Last week was Socrates. A little bit of biography, uh, Dr. West, before I ask you how to read Plato. I sat down in 1974 in a class on political theory, and I'd never taken one. And Harvey Mansfield was teaching, and the book in front of me was Alan Bloom's The Republic by Plato. Man, was I lost. I was Gilligan. I just didn't have a clue how to read this. Is that the best way to begin, Plato? You who have studied your whole life, how do you begin to read Plato? Well, I, I guess that's uh, that's right. I, I, I agree with you. The Republic is baffling, and you really need to have a good teacher to help you uh, work through. And, and it's long too. It's, you know, it's very hard to keep your ha- handle on it. Um, I sometimes tell my literary friends that they shouldn't be assigning Homer uh, right to freshmen. It's like giving Plato to freshmen. They should be assigning an episode of The Simpsons and teach them how to analyze a very short literary slash dramatic dramatic work oh how interesting then you can get back into the really serious stuff but i plato's kind of similar and i i I like to start with the simpler dialogues like the apology the euthyphro the ones i translated in four texts on socrates Um, they're shorter they're bite-sized you can think about some of the questions raised very uh compactly uh 
and not get lost in the trees. Uh, doctor, on your commentary on Dr. West's advice. Well, he, he knows as much as anybody I know about these things, and I, I think he's right. I, I, you know, we were both students of Harry Jaffa, and Professor Jaffa was, he, he, you know, he, he thought you can't know a whole bunch of great books. Life is too short. So you should pick a few. Three was the number he always used. And you should know those, and that means you'll have to read them for a lifetime. And so uh, what Tom's point about the Simpsons is, uh, is that it's, it's compact, right? And so first show them how to do it, and then let them tackle something big, but that'll take many years. You know, Dr. West, uh, we've been doing this, as we said in the first segment, a long time, and the Simpsons have never entered the Hillsdale Dialogues until now. So you've also created a first ever in the Hillsdale Dialogues. Uh, let's go back. Why does Plato use Socrates instead of himself in these dialogues? Well, first of all, uh, the Simpsons, uh, I remember a conversation I had back in the 1990s when the Simpsons was really good. Uh, between me and Harvey Mansfield, your teacher ha! at Harvard, Mansfield and I agreed it was the best. It was the best thing on TV at the time. So oh my let, gosh! Let's not look, let's not look down too much, at least on the early days, the great days of the Simpsons. Um, but you're asking now about why does he why does he use Socrates as a hero? What's 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 going on with that? Plato uh, is is a Socratic in his way. He's er- very interested in Socrates' method of figuring out or approaching reality through conversation. That, the great breakthrough in Greek philosophy was that, Socrates deciding, start with people's opinions about things, and then examine those opinions with a view to clarifying, refining, perfecting what the truth is in them, and get rid of the stuff that the person holding that opinion really doesn't believe in if, when you press him. That, that is, and that's based on the idea that even in our ordinary life, our ordinary opinions, we have a kind of glimpse of the truth that's hidden from us by all by various dross and and uh, other nonsense stuff that we believe in, and and that side of refining people's starting from where they are as opposed to. You know, telling people, oh, well, you know, your body consists of atoms, and love is really nothing more than uh, a bunch of hormones running. Instead of starting with that, their their idea was to start with the appearances of things as indicated through speeches. You could call it phenomenology, if you want to use a modern term, uh, the basic method. Start with appearances. And, And that's what Socrates taught Plato, I think, more than anything else was that. And, of course, that leads to skepticism. That leads to questions uh, about things. And, and that, can, uh, that, can make, that can make the whole thing very difficult to, when you nail down the ultimate, sort, ultimate reality of what you're trying to accomplish. When we come back, we'll talk about whether that even works anymore and what are the preconditions for that approach working. If we talk about Plato on the Hillsdale Dialogue, Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Thomas West. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Thomas West, professor there. We're talking Plato in this week's Hillsdale Dialogues. All of the dialogues are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale is at Hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, I remain momentarily staggered by the fact that um, Dr. West and, and Professor Mansfield debated The Simpsons I myself have never seen an episode of The Simpsons. I've seen glimpses of it. Have you? 
Uh, I've seen two or three. And my children are, dist- and my son-in-law, they're all distraught with me that I don't have a deep knowledge of The Simpsons. So that, that is a task that is before me. Okay, we'll have to find a Sherpa for that. I want to go back to the idea of whether or not the dialogue process described by Dr. West in the last segment still works in, a, in an era in which we find ourselves where conversation is crippled. And in fact, it's rare indeed to have one. Uh, I want to read a, a little short two sentences, and Tom can answer that from the, from the seventh letter. Uh, Plato is, is uh, explaining why he doesn't intend to write, although he does say if anybody can do it, he can. He says, there never is nor ever will be a treatise of mine on these subjects, the subjects of his life, for it does not admit of exposition like other branches of knowledge. But after much conversation about the matter itself and a life lived together, suddenly a light, as it were, is kindled in one soul by a flame that leaps to it from another and thereafter sustains itself. So Plato is arguing here that the truth arises in conversation, starting with the things we know or think we know, because that grounds us in reality, right? And you don't start with a theory. You start with what seems to be the case. And then you analyze that and you do it together. And uh, that's, why in the, that, that's why in the dialogues, the characters are all there. And we know something about many of them. And that's why in Aristotle's uh, treatises, they're, they're written dialectically. That is, if you read The Ethics, which is the book that I know the best maybe in the world. Anyway, I've read it many, many times. Um, it, 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 each part of it, all the way through, is written for somebody who knows that much. And, and then there's constant development of the argument. And, and so by the end, it doesn't look entirely like, in fact, in many ways, not at all like the beginning. And that's because we have learned through this process of going step by step from what we know, what we think we know, to what might actually be knowledge. And then I'll close by saying in this letter, the seventh letter, um, uh, Plato seems to make, to me, I wonder what Tom thinks about this, to make the argument that there's uh, five kinds of knowing, and the fifth is the thing itself, the reality of it, the wholeness of it. And he says that our knowledge is the closest to the reality of the thing. It's closer than any image of it. It's closer than any name of it or any definition of it. And in other words, when you go through this process, you can find reality better than any other way. Dr. West. Yeah, I think I, uh, that's those. That's what I think Socrates. That's Plato learned from Socrates. Uh, but but and I do. And you ask whether that's possible in our time. I I don't know if it's possible in any time except to a very few people. And the and the reason is indicated by Plato's uh, by by Socrates' death. Socrates, uh, you know, by doing that very thing that Plato is describing in his letter, brought himself the hatred and enmity of people around him who didn't like having their having it exposed that their opinions were not defensible, especially when their sons and uh, their friends, sons of their friends of their sons, were were you know exposing them. 
that was very irritating. And that's true today. I mean, what, what's, what is political correctness uh, and the demand for silencing people other than exactly a repetition of the old Socratic drama? And I think in light of that, so Plato realized he had to do better than Socrates in terms of defending the Socratic, the philosophic way of life. And that's where I think Plato exceeded, excelled, and in some ways uh, developed a critique of Socrates. You know, the philosopher, it's not enough to philosophize. It's also necessary to explain in a way that the public can accept what philosophy is. Yeah, and, and that's Dr. what he, Plato tried to do in his dialogue. That's why he became the guy who made Socrates world famous. I, I have never believed that we were in a crisis until recently, because I always thought we would persuade ourselves of the right thing to do, which is what we've always done, though sometimes at the point of a sword. Now I don't even think anyone will have the conversation. It's why I pose the question, even for a very few people, and I think you just hit on it. It's too damn dangerous to have the conversation for too many people in public life. They don't get a chance to change their mind. The one thing I can remember dimly is Themistocles changed his mind. Did he not? Am I wrong about that? Am I misremembering? Wait, that's he just run out of town. He was run out of town? Oh, I know. I, 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 I thought of Thersimachus in the, in the Republic. That's what I meant. I meant Thermistic. That's what I meant. He was yeah, run out of town? Yeah, he just run out of town. He, he was, he was, Didn't he change his mind, though? Was he not persuaded of anything? Uh, in the Republic, he was, for sure. That's, yeah. that's what I thought, but I don't think anyone can be persuaded of anything right now, Dr. West. Do you agree with me? There's just not enough time. No one listens. But Thersimachus and Socrates shared, their, shared common ground. They were both thinkers and serious thinkers. I mean, Plato presents them a bit of a caricature way, but he was a serious guy and understood something. Uh, about reality, and he he could see that basically Socrates had exposed him as being insufficiently uh, uh, aware of his own self-interest in dealing with the public. He was openly defending injustice, and that was going to get him in trouble. And that's what he learned from Socrates. I got to stop that. I got to learn to how to present myself better. And uh, you know, in a way, it's a very cynical lesson to learn, but it's key. It's a key to life, right? You can't go around insulting people. You can't go around telling the society they're wrong. And, now, uh, that, but that is, right. in fact, uh, Dr. Arndt, I think that's where we are right now. And, and I had said I've had 50 years of trouble pronouncing Thrasymachus because of my speech, but it seems to me to be the general problem. Everybody is running around insulting everyone. And no yeah. one is having see, a conversation. That, first of all, in 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 the, the there are many terrible examples of societies becoming you know punitive at any indiscretion, and the totalitarian societies, you know, they watch your facial expression and yes. you can be killed for that or tortured. And just read 1984, and I pray that we won't go there. But societies, you know, we learn in the classics are always tempted to that and and we're you know we're in a we're in a mess here because uh you know you, you and me and tom because in our different ways we're teachers and so you must we're you're in the position of socrates you must say what you think is so and you can say it carefully if you want to and you must actually but if you and if you can because that's taxing mentally but in the end, you know, I mean, is it true 
that the essence of a person is defined by the color of his skin, that can't be true, right? Because if it were true, we couldn't have objective knowledge of it. And yet many things are being said in the tone of violence today that, that you have to look at it like that. And, and that's to redress grievances, you know, and there's, it's, there's a charity in it that gives it energy and it's got some claim. But that, you see, in other words, that's uh, uh, what, what Plato gives us and Socrates gives us is an invitation to stop and think. And, you know, they, they were not people. I mean, Plato, when he was young, he was, you know, he, he thought he'd save the world. But in the end, he thought he would save it by keeping alive these conversations so they could be present in every age. And in any decent society, that will be allowed. That's now, doc, Dr. West, doesn't he also, though, end in arguing for a totalitarian society? Plato, you mean? Uh, yes. yes. Uh, he, he does in the Republic. There's no question about it. <clears throat> but it's characteristic of Plato uh, and, and of Socrates, too, to look at a problem and examine it from the point of view, from a particular point of view that is not the whole comprehensive point of view. He tries to take uh, the longing for justice, the longing for perfect justice, which animates Glaucon and Adam and the young boys that he's discussing this all with in the Republic. Socrates tries to take them down the road of showing them, if you want perfect justice, and if you don't care about anything else than that, you're going to end up with, with, a, with a mess. You're going to end up with a totalitarian society that you yourselves ultimately would not want to live in. And, and you know, that's what happens in the Republic. The turn away from that uh, is, you know, which Socrates, after perfecting his description of that totalitarian city in which everybody is totally dedicated to the common good, he introduces philosophy, the insight into what is, which is not shared by the city, which is an individual pursuit. And from the point of view of that individual pursuit, and in, and in fact, from the point of view of all things that are individual, that city is unjust. And that's the lesson that Glaucon has to be led to uh, step by step through considering, on the one hand, how wonderful it would be, you know, in theory, for this perfect uh, unity to take place. And on the other hand, how unjust that would be to the true individual. And, and that's Plato. That's typical Plato. That's typical Socrates. You're going to look at things from one angle. And then it's going to get corrected and looked at in a different way. But he does end up with a society where uh, families are abolished, sex is regulated. It is the least free of constructs, is it not? Absolutely correct. It abolishes the family. And then you have, and, and of course, uh, in another book by Plato, The Laws, uh, the, where the character is not Socrates, the person doing the doing the doing the argument, carrying the argument forward, is not Socrates. In that book, the family is restored, and the republic is criticized on the grounds that the republic uh, would only work uh, for a, a people of that a people that was godlike. In other words, not human, inhuman. And in the laws, which is of course the more practical book. So, uh, Plato's character, spokesman there, restores the family, restores marriage, restores the integrity of the private, uh, allows for, uh, even in the best city, which is presented there, 
the best practical city, you have to have a place for private life, private love, private affection, and 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 that and that that becomes the ultimate, the conclusion. When so we, when, re- when we yeah. come back, we're going to talk about the other ultimate conclusion of the republic. And again, I recommend to you four texts on Socrates by Dr. West. Go nowhere. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry R. and Dr. Thomas West, both of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I have ordered four texts on Socrates uh, after last week. It has not yet arrived. Uh, we're all in a, in a miss. But I have one of the world's great authorities on Plato, so I have to ask you. Uh, Dr. West, what does the myth of Ur intend to teach the reader? Well, it's a teaching about human responsibility. This comes at the end of Plato's Republic. Socrates uh, is presenting Glaucon, who wanted, he's the one who wanted to have this totalitarian perfect state. And at the end, he's he's telling Glaucon, look, uh, that's not possible. Uh, what is possible is the perfection of the human soul, not the human state, not the human political order. Uh, and and you should act as if your actions will redound on your future self for all eternity. The doctrine of the myth of Ur is that souls are all reborn, and people make choices about their way of life based on their previous uh, way of life on Earth. And and it's the you know if you've if you've chosen a way of life on Earth that is uh, tyrannical, then you're going to choose uh, some really bad re, uh, reincarnation. And if you choose and if, and if you choose a good way of life, you choose the best way of life, then your reincarnation will be good. So it's in other words, you can't assume whatever you get away with in this life is all there is. It's going to be a future consequence. And you're going to bring it on yourself. And so, Dr. Arn, uh, uh, Ulysses uh, uh, chooses to be a farmer, if I recall correctly. What's that tell you? Uh, well, uh, I'll speculate. Um, in the end, I think that uh, uh, classical political philosophy is very radical, and it requires courage. Leo Strauss writes this at the end of a really beautiful essay called What is Political Philosophy? Um, but it also requires moderation. You know, the ultimate teaching of, of Plato, and, and, you know, so Achilles faced a choice, right? Achilles could stay home and have his family and live a great life, or he could go and get killed and be famous, and he chose the latter. And Ulysses, at the end, you know, he, he gets home. It's hard for him to get home. He only half wants to go. He keeps having all these adventures. And so, but I think that the the net of all of that, and the, the, especially in the net of the relation between the republic and the later laws, is that you, you can't make a perfect city, and if you do, you will make a totalitarian and disastrous city. And you know, you can you can make things better, uh, but if you try to make them everything right, you will make everything wrong. Do you agree with the net, Dr. West? Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, when Xenophon, as a younger man, one of the other students of Socrates, uh, went off to become a military uh, figure and became a very successful one in a campaign, a Greek campaign against the Persian uh, monarchy. Uh, And then when he got back, he retired to a farm. He did what uh, Odysseus does, uh, as you say. Um, 
he chose a quiet life. And then that's where he wrote his books. I mean, he chose, in other words, after seeing the charms and the attractions of the, of the political life, and he was very attracted by it, he, he also recognized this other way of life, too, has its, has its charm, has its benefits, and it's good. Yeah, we have and, to. Uh, and, he, and he chose that, and that's you know that's basically what happens to Odysseus. And after the being a busybody on Earth, you know, he, cho- he chooses the quiet life. We have to explain to the Steelers fans: Odysseus is Ulysses. Ulysses is Odysseus. Uh, and so they are now clued in on what's going on. Yeah, you know, we've never done Xenophon uh, in the whether it's four hundred or six hundred hours. We've never done Xenophon, Doctor Arndt. Yeah, we, we should. Have, do it. I've been teaching Xenophon some lately. Uh, next week. Well, he, yeah, he's, Xenophon is important, in my opinion, because of these people who were close to Socrates and make the record of him, uh, Xenophon is the one who, who was a statesman. Now, we know from this seventh letter that I mentioned earlier that the political ambitions and passions ran high in Plato uh, when he was younger, but in Xenophon, he was a conqueror, right? He did great things. Oh. A march, a march from history. Yes. Yeah, and I and I think, I think you read him because he's the one who was a statesman, and I I think you know I've lately read I reread I hadn't read it for thirty years probably but I lately read the education of Cyrus, and and you know Cyrus was the founder of the Persian Empire, and it's a it's a wonderful book and it, and it and what it does is it shows that this. Ardent, high-minded, extremely talented young man uh, reduces by, by his perfectionism in a way. He he reduces everyone to slaves, and him then only surrounded by slaves. Indeed, even eunuchs. That's people who can't have a family of their own. They can't. And so there's a teaching of moderation in Xenophon too. Well, there we will go next week. Uh, Dr. Thomas West's book is four texts along with Dr. Grace West. Four texts on Socrates. Go and get it. Uh, go and read The Education of Cyrus if you have a chance before next week. I've never read it. I have something to do. Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Thomas West, thanks to you both. Hillsdale.edu, America. Go get smart. It's a never-ending journey. I'll be right back, America, on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.